Welcome to the Wild J Podcast. I'm Rebecca Steele, the Wild J Podcast Editor. In today's episode, first-year editor Nelson Barrett and I explore why efforts at police reform should shift power away from the police and toward police communities, specifically Black communities and other communities of color. The ongoing police brutality and violence directed towards Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities in the United States speaks for itself in identifying the urgent need for police reform or abolition. Advocates and grassroots organizations have demonstrated why we need truly transformative change to achieve any meaningful form of public safety and security, transformative change that traditional approaches to police reform and police accountability have clearly failed to achieve. We recorded an interview with Professor Jocelyn Simonson on her article, Police Reform Through a Power Lens, in fall 2020. Professor Simonson spoke to us about power shifting in the governance of the police and how it empowers the communities who most frequently interact with and are impacted by policing. We explore examples of how social movement organizers have worked to make this a reality on both the local and national level, including the People's Coalition for Safety and Freedom's work to develop a people's process led by the people most harmed by the criminal legal system. Early this year, we spoke with Tracy Corder, an organizer in the People's Coalition, about what this process could look like and why it is so important for us to create new visions for safety and freedom. Professor Jocelyn Simonson is a professor of law at Brooklyn Law School and is currently a visiting professor at Columbia Law School. She writes and teaches about criminal law, criminal procedure, evidence, and social change. Her scholarship explores ways in which the public participates in the criminal process and in the institutions of local governments that control policing and punishment. Professor Simonson is the author of the recent Yale Law Journal article, Police Reform Through a Power Lens. In this article, Professor Simonson examines social movements focus on power shifting in the governance of police and makes an argument about the importance of a power lens when considering the regulation of policing. Professor Simonson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. What a treat to be with you. Of course. Um, I'm hoping you can start us off by telling us a little bit about how you came to write this paper. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, You know, I've been a uh, law professor and legal academic for a few years now. And what I try to do in my scholarship is look at how social movements or collectives of people directly affected by the carceral state are working together to resist the status quo of the carceral state and all of its racialized dynamics in various ways. So for example, I've studied some forms of collective resistance outside of the state, like cop watching, court watching, participatory defense, things like that, Um, bail funds as well. And I believe by studying these mobilizations and tactics of resistance, we can come to new understandings of how legal change happens and what the goals of reform should be or what we want the state should be doing to help people thrive and be able to take care of each other. And so this project looks at policing and specifically at policing policy and governance. And what I noticed is that movement proposals for police reform that I've been following and excited by are very different from mainstream reform efforts, both in elite policy making circles and importantly for the purposes of the paper in elite academic circles. Um, So a lot of the focus on movement actors is on what I call the power lens. These are reform proposals that surface the specific role that policing plays in denying people in highly policed neighborhoods, their democratic standing, their collective political impact. 
These are reform proposals that take head on the racialized history of policing. These are proposals that focus on power, on shifting power away from the police and toward populations that are traditionally subject to the everyday domination of policing. And to get this kind of a focus, you can only get it really by looking to people who are directly impacted by these histories of subordination and who because of that experience collectively come up with these new ways of thinking where we should go. And I guess the last thing I'd say about the process of this paper is that a lot of it was written before the crises of 2020 took shape. The combination of the pandemic and the uprising against police violence, there's some are calling the biggest set of protests in the history of the century. And so as you be, might be able to tell if you read the paper, on the one hand, so much has changed in our world and in the public discourse around policing, police violence and police reform over the last say year. And on the other hand, one of the things I'm hoping this paper can help show is that some of the current discussions that are making their way into mainstream debates, such as whether to defund the police, whether the police can be reformed at all, what a new administration should maybe do when it comes to police reform. These are not brand new ideas arising out of nowhere, but rather reflect ongoing pushes for reform from social movements over the last five, 10 years, and even longer. So sort of to end where I started and thinking about how I came to this paper, more broadly, one thing I, I really wanna emphasize and hope that someone would get from reading or thinking about it is that if we're looking for inspirational long-term ways of shifting the status quo and changing how we think about law and how the state operates, it's really by looking to social movements that we find uh, those visions and those inspirations. So in some ways, my paper is me doing some analysis and some writing. And in a lot of ways, it's me trying to channel what I see out in the world and that feels the most inspirational to me. Thanks for sharing that context. It's really helpful. You've been alluding to some of the proposals that communities who are most affected by policing have put forward, um, what social movement leaders themselves have ad advocated for. Can you describe what these proposals look like in a little more detail and, and how your piece speaks to them as well? In my paper, I uh, lift up and look at two reform proposals from different ends of the federalism spectrum, if you will. One is a local idea of pushing for community control of the police. And one is a national idea of a federal vision for what legislation for police reform should look like. And I can talk about each of them, but the idea is not that these two things represent on their own what I think of as the power lens, but rather to show that it's not a local idea and it's not a federal idea, it's a power idea. It's an idea that we can conceive of and try to think about and puzzle through no matter what place we are and thinking about so-called police reform. So the local example that I look at is in Chicago. It's called the Chicago City Council's Civilian Police Accountability Council or CPAC. And that's an idea of community control in which there would be uh, civilians chosen through elections in each neighborhood district within the Chicago Police Department. And then those neighborhood districts would be in control of what policing looks like in that neighborhood. So this is often referred to as community control. And when you look at the specifics of this legislation, some of the things that are exciting about it is how it defines and uh, 
requires uh, certain people to be on these councils and certain people to not be. So police officers are not allowed to be on the local councils. People related to police officers are not allowed to be on the councils. They have to be independent of the mayor and the people who are in charge of the local government. And so the idea is that it's people who lived in the neighborhoods who are, are policed, who have control over the police themselves. So, and then that control cannot just be about disciplining police officers on the back end which is often what ideas of local police accountability are about, uh, but rather it can be on the front end. Where should police go? What should they do? Should they even be armed? Should they even be here at all? Um, and so as you get to those questions and you make those questions broader and broader, you see that you end up having control over big questions about how a local police department should go about providing safety and security, and by extension, how the state overall should go about providing safety. So in contrast, the national example I look at is a coalition that's made up of lots of different organizations coming together uh, to make the People's Coalition for Safety and Freedom. And they proposed national legislation to replace the 1994 crime bill and uh, this is a proposed legislation that they put together, not from having four or five experts sit in a room, but, by, but from having a series of meetings uh, among local membership-based organizations by directly impacted people around the country who came up with a series of ideas that then made it into this broader uh, proposal. And the proposal, if you look at sort of uh, what it asks for, it's very broad. Uh, and it thinks about the federal provision of safety uh, as being less about the police and more about investing in communities in other ways. This is written well before the 2020 uh, protests and defund and invest, divest becoming things that we all know about now. Um, this is essentially a move to defund the police on a federal level uh, without using those words. And so one of the things it does, it say, we're going to lessen, we're going to reduce the amount of money that the federal government gives to local police departments through things such as, for instance, community policing initiatives. And then we're going to use that money to support people in other ways, perhaps, perhaps through uh, federal funding of housing, perhaps through education things that the idea is, if you invest this money in communities, then people are going to harm each other less and be able to support each other when harm happens in more productive ways. That said, there's also another layer to this proposal, which is what makes it part of the power lens more than the invest-divest idea. And that is that it requires that there be what they call a people's process. And the people's process would mean that Congress would be required to leave Washington, D.C. and go to local communities and hold forums in which people who are directly affected by the carceral state in various ways uh, get to have a say, have input into what uh, the priorities of the federal government should be when it decides to provide safety and security, right? So asking this big question, is policing even the way to provide safety and security? Well, we're telling you our understanding that it's not, but we're also requiring you to go ask people who are directly affected whether it is or not, right? It's kind of an iterative thing. Um, and so 
it's not as direct a handing of power to people, right? It's not a council of people who are in charge, but it would be an extraordinary move to have Congress come to communities of directly impacted people and ask them what safety and security mean to them. And so it's that uh, idea of a people's process and note that the coalition is living out this people's process through the way in which they're generating their proposed legislation. They're li they lived it out in 2020 where they had a series of teach-ins about the 94 crime bill and they continue to live it out um, in engaging in their own people's processes. So those are the two ends, the federal and the local ends. And together, I think we can get out um, a general theme and a general focus that's absent from a lot of elite driven reform, which is on taking power away from the police and away from people who are currently in charge and asking people whose lives have been harmed by policing and by the over policing of certain neighborhoods and communities and by the carceral state more broadly, asking those people, uh, handing those people some power and having a say in what's going on. And by doing that, it turns out it's not just about handing off power, but also about opening up questions that the state doesn't usually ask, namely, how can the state provide safety and security? The question the state usually asks is, what should policing look like? Or where should we police? This is bringing it to a broader first order question about what safety and security should mean. And that is why, um, it's pretty explicitly, both in the eyes of these movements and um, from my view, connected to um, abolitionist ideas about shifting meetings of safety and security away from the carceral state. Thank you, Professor. Um, I think building on that, one thing we wanted to ask is, one of the most striking parts of your article is this idea that um, we we have a very narrow view of what constitutes an expert and what constitutes expertise. Why do we have that narrow idea? And more broadly, what's the best way to sort of address the, the narrowness of this idea and, and, and become more familiar with the idea that people in communities affected by policing are in fact experts um, in, in, in their own right. So our current understandings of expertise in policing are narrow and I think two different senses that overlap with each other. One is the sense that I'm guessing since we're in elite institutions we're familiar with, which is that expertise is generated by long-term studying of the problem from people with advanced degrees, often in universities, who come to expert understandings based on data about what works and what doesn't. That's sort of one idea of expertise. And on the one hand, it's based on data. Um, on the other hand, it's an incredibly elite understanding of what it means to be an expert. And then there's a related idea, which is that uh, the people who are in charge of law enforcement are the experts on law enforcement. Um, so anyone who's ever been in a criminal courtroom, I was a public defender for five years, is very familiar with the idea that police officers are experts, right? They're experts on when somebody looks like a drug dealer. They're experts on when something is suspicious, right? We're very used to relying on police officers as experts about crime and about crime prevention. And <clears throat> so when we get to police reform, that um, trickles into that as well. It doesn't even trickle, it rolls into that as well. 
this idea that police are experts on policing. Um, and it's kind of an intuitive idea, right? Um, but it's missing the other side of the interaction between police and people who are policed, uh, who are generally not thought of as experts. And again, this happens in the courtroom. This is something I've written about in related pieces. Um, but we, it's pretty rare to take somebody who's been uh, stopped and frisked 98 times, which uh, would not have been rare under New York City's uh, previous reign of stop and frisk and say, let's qualify you as an expert on stop and frisk, right? It's relatively rare to have somebody who's gone uh, through prosecution or for that matter, who's been harmed and tried to use the criminal uh, system um, to get some measure of uh, their conception of justice. It's pretty unusual to take those people and say that they are the experts who we wanna put onto our fancy commissions or into the rooms with closed doors in which we're deciding what should happen. Um, how did we get there? Um, that's a complicated question, um, but I will say that it's not confined to the criminal legal system, right? I think we live in a technocracy in a lot of ways. As much as people are worried about the uh, rise of populism today, I think we're safely in a technocratic world, especially in 2021. And so it's not confined to the criminal legal system, but there's also something about policing itself, about the domination involved in the act of being a police officer that has led us ideologically as a, as a society to lionize the officer, especially the commanding officer, um, and then to imbue them with a sense of expertise that makes expertise in the sense of policing uh, uniquely exclusionary and uniquely anti-democratic. Um, and that's really important in the context of policing because policing, in my view, and in view of the movements that I think alongside and write about, um, is an anti-democratic practice. Monica Bell, who's a professor at Yale Law School, has written about how the act of policing uh, can take away people's uh, democratic standing uh, in their own neighborhoods. Um, and other people have written about this uh, in various ways. It can be, um, it's not just that dignity is reduced when police officers are constantly patrolling your neighborhood. It's that one's own understanding of what of one's place in a democracy and your ability to decide how the state interacts with you and how the state supports you is eroded over the long term, both individually and communally. And I mention that to say that expertise and how we define it is another way in which we take away democratic standing, the ability to participate democratically from people who are most often police. So as much as it's a problem, how we currently think about expertise, um, my paper I think should be actually kind of a hopeful story about how to define expertise. The exciting thing is that social movements are engaging in this incredible, thoughtful, long-term, intense, politically and locally grounded work to create new institutions of governance and new understandings of how the state should be using uh, its resources, its money, its attention, its expert commissions. And so uh, as much as we have a reigning exclusionary idea of expertise, we also have another idea of expertise that we don't have to just imagine. We can go to local meetings and local gatherings and see it in action 
and be inspired as we see it. Thank you. Um, I think our last question was just sort of about looking ahead. I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about movements that seem to be um, progressing on these fronts and succeeding in implementing some forms of community control and what that looks like um, right now on the ground and, and how that might move forward in the future. Coming out of the 2020 election, um, some of these debates around who should be in charge of police reform have actually come back to the fore, especially with a Biden campaign that claimed police reform to be a priority. Uh, we immediately saw uh, sudden debates between whether the idea of defund is too radical uh, or whether we should um, ha return to our more elite conceptions of what federal reform should look like. Um, so on the one hand, I see a lot of hope. On the other hand, I see the same debates uh, emerging and re-emerging in various waves over time. Um, but I have to say, uh, one of the most hopeful stories for me of 2020 is the way in which the long-term movement understandings of divesting from policing and investing in communities in other ways um, came to be something that we debate and discuss. Most people have an opinion about whether we should defund the police. That's incredible. A lot of people didn't have an opinion about that one year ago. Um, and that's because of, uh, yes, people in the street protesting, but also the long-term imagining of what safety and security can look like from the people most directly affected by policing. And what feels hopeful for me um, is that elite rhetoric is shifting a little bit. Um, and mostly what feels hopeful for me is that I think more and more, whether it's in the op-ed section of the New York Times or in the Yale Law Journal or in law school classes or um, sort of, you know, radio discussions of what police reform can look like, um, more and more people are starting to recognize that expertise can be found from people directly affected by the system because they're actively motivated to engage in these long-term collective ideas uh, about how to go forward. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Simonson. For our listeners interested in learning more, we recommend Professor Simonson's article, Police Reform Through a Power Lens. And of course, we recommend following the work of the many social movement leaders and other folks who are directly affected by policing, who are working on police reform and abolition directly. We are now joined by Tracy Quarter to talk about how some of these ideas play out in practice. Tracy is the Deputy Campaign Director for the Action Center on Race and the Economy's work on policing. She has served as a social worker, electoral campaign organizer, and political strategist. Tracy is also a key organizer with the People's Coalition for Safety and Freedom, the revolutionary advocacy group made up of numerous grassroots organizations that Professor Simonson referred to both in her interview and her article. Thank you for joining us, Tracy. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. So to start us off, could you share some background on your work with the People's Coalition? Absolutely. Um, so I um, started um, kind of talking about Divest Invest work um, in 2015, um, but was lucky enough to uh, work for the Center for Popular Democracy when this campaign um, came to fruition. My uh, colleague and coworker at the time, Kumar Rao, um, said, what would it look like uh, to look at 
the 94 crime bill um, as this federal expression of the divest campaigns that we had been uh, consulting on and providing technical support to across the country. Um, and uh, we, uh, he obviously like got a, a bunch of great people together <laughs> um, as Kumar typically does. Um, and so uh, reached out to Law for Black Lives, Policy Link, and BYP 100, uh, because they are a grouping of folks that we worked with on um, this this report and this campaign called Freedom to Thrive, um, which really took uh, what, what we were talk- calling that time invest divest um, out of silos. So often that work is siloed um, and policing had been looked at as this third rail, like nobody was touching it across the country. And what was found is that lots of people were talking about this. Lots of people were talking about not just the um, divestment part, but the investment part and what communities need. Um, And so um, March 6th of um, 2019, there was a bunch of groups that got together, uh, people who were directly impacted, people who were doing electoral campaigns um, and came together in a room and talked about what it would look like to move a campaign like this forward. Um, And so since then, uh, we've hosted teach-ins. We are building towards doing a democratic people's process to not only repeal the 94 crime bill, but write the replacement um, through a democratically democratically held assemblies all over the country. Um, And it's really taken off. Um, And really, we've been doing work to push back against this narrative that criminalization um, and removing people from our communities is the answer. Um, to violence um, in in public safety and that public safety is actually these massive investments that are needed in our communities. Absolutely. And I would love to hear more about that people's process because it seems like a lot of what the People's Coalition is advocating for is substantive, like specifying areas for community investment, as you just described, eliminating the death penalty and private prisons and immigration detention facilities. But one thing that really stands out to me from what I know of the People's Coalition's work and also what you just told us about is how much of the coalition's advocacy is really procedural. So for example, increasing transparency and participation from directly impacted communities. So could you speak to us about what motivated that approach and how that approach works to shift power? Mm, That's a really good question. So I want to first say um, it's not just private prisons. I, I, I like to put that fine point on things. It's, it's all prisons. Um, I think private Absolutely. prisons is a, is a buzzword that we use um, and we fall back on um, to not talk about the actual harm that is basically like kidnapping people from our communities and, and putting them in cages. Um, and so um, I, I think that that is important to say up front. But one of the things that we heard um, about the 94 crime bill kind of in retrospect, when people are defending their vote for it, when they're defending um, their support of it, they say, well, Black people wanted this. Um, as if that is this answer, this this magic answer um, to escape accountability. Um, and what we know is, one, that's not true. There were uh, lots of Black people at the time who pushed back against this, Um the Congressional Back Caucus uh, actually floated an alternative bill. Um, and we had like people who stood up, uh, who were in office, who stood up and said, this is not the bill for us. So that people like Maxine Waters, um, people like the late John Lewis um, ha- have, you know, said at the time that this was not the bill for them and they voted, they voted against it. Um, and so one of the ways that we can push back against that narrative is to talk about 
which people are making the decision and which people are at the table. Um, we know that it takes a lot of access to get to a president. It takes a lot of access to get to a congressperson. And so what would it look like to flip that paradigm and say the people actually have access? The people actually get to write the replacement. And the folks who have been the most impacted, the people who have life experience, which has led to expertise, will be the people who say what actually is safety in their community. And that's the the kind of life of the people's process and what it means and why this campaign is uh, is different. We have not seen, we've, we've seen certain uh, offices in Congress um, listen to people's stories and turn them into legislation. I think Elizabeth Warren's office does a really good job of that. I think Bernie Sanders' office is, does a good job of that. Ayanna Presley's office does a good job of that. But it's not the same as having people invested through a democratically ran process where they can talk about how criminalization impacts communities from top to bottom. So Uh, My dream and the way I talk about the people's process is, you know, I live in Oakland um, where amazing work has already been done around uh, defunding police. Um, Anti-Police Terror Project um, has been doing this for years and has been calling for a 50 percent divestment from um, Oakland Police Department. So if we ran a people's process there, for example, we have people who are talking about how they can rewrite this, what community investments look like on the federal level, but it's also a way to get people involved and engaged and invigorated around local campaigns so we can make that connection. Um, There are great organizations that are doing work on the state level. There are great organizations that are doing work um, on the county level there. So that connection can be made and that through line can be made about criminalization and tell a full story about uh, what has happened since 94. Right. Thank you. That's really helpful. Speaking of the federal level, you mentioned the 94 crime bill as one of the influences behind the coalition's work. And I understand that was authored by then Senator Biden. So I'm wondering if you could give us some context on the lasting impact of that bill and also how hopeful you are about the prospect of the kinds of transformative change you're describing uh, being achieved under the Biden administration. I am always hopeful and organizers and organizing because um, nothing transformational has happened that people didn't say was impossible. Um, And so we have seen organizers make uh, really, really massive things happen. Um, And so when I think about um, the 94 crime bill and its lasting impacts, what I think about is not just, um, you know, there was 60 new death penalty offenses added onto the 94 crime bill. And there's like lasting things like the cops office, for example, um, that still gives money to local municipalities. It's still a fe- like, you know, federal federal funding into local, gov- uh, local policing. But I also think about this narrative um, that was built and that has permeated since then. Um, there, there was this idea, if you look at, uh, you know, then Senator Biden's speech on the floor, um, it's actually really horrifying. And I bet you he would even be horrified to hear what, like the way he said it and how crass it was. Um, I, I've seen it pretty often where he said, you know, I don't care about the root causes. This is about removing people from our neighborhoods and from our communities so they don't get to your mom and my mom. And it was all fear tactics. And it was not about any restorative justice. It was not about actually addressing what the root causes of violence are and having any community like 
response to public safety. Um, it was not about providing investments. So and when I say investments, I, I think I actually hate any language that's around um, that's around handouts. I think that's ridiculous. But there's this this thought that people mean that, and what it, what I really mean is strategic investments in community that are led by community because our communities have been strategically divested from. Divestments have happened for years. You know, austerity budgets have happened for years. And so what the 94 Crime Bill did was come in and say and provide this narrative that said that the way to public safety is more policing. The way to public safety is more punishment. And so not only did that, you know, we know a lot of culture is shift is set and shifted on this federal level of legislation. Um you know, you see local municipalities, even on the positive level, now saying they're passing like local versions of a Green New Deal, right? Like we see that right now. So how could we how could we not know and believe that local municipalities saw the federal level uh, normalizing criminalization, normalizing police and prisons, and that didn't, uh, you know, for better use of a word, trickle down to local level governments? And I'll also say, uh, you know, even when we say or we say communities are asking for more policing, um, which what people are asking for is is public safety. What people are saying is they want to feel safe. And one of the things I belabor all the time to my coworkers, they laugh a lot, is for 30 years, law and order has provided it's essentially an infomercial for police. <laughs> and this, the level of policing that people are asking for is not a level that, that exists. The system that people are, are believing in or trying to make better through like reforms, which is why reforms don't work, is, is, is a system that doesn't exist. It's fictitious. Um, people don't want police to show up to their house. People, people want Olivia Benson to show up there, to their house, right? Like, Everything that we watch on TV, even if it's superhero movies, even if it's uh, like procedural dramas, like reinforce this idea that police are there to help, Um, which I I really love what uh, Carissa Lewis says from um, Movement for Black Lives, which is police are note takers. Police come after the fact. Um, And so... What we're talking about is what does it look like to invest in the in the root causes? What does it look like to invest in um, communities being able to own safety themselves? That it, and it looks restorative um, and not just not like punishment. Thank you. I really appreciate the way that you're framing that question. And I'm wondering why you think maybe so many other people frame it differently and why so many efforts at reform are centered around how to improve the police instead of how to improve public safety. Because I imagine, you know, that framework has a relatively large impact on the power of law enforcement compared to the power of impacted communities of color in these debates. I mean, I think that there are there's a range of reasons people look at it this way. Um, I think from what I said, like we are taught that this system should work. We are taught that um, from everything, everything from is reinforced that way for us, uh, whether it's our media, whether it's our education. Um, and so people are invested in making a system that doesn't exist actually work. So that's that's one part of it. Um, and I also think that there is something to um, it, the 
when you think about policing, it has been a third rail for so long. It has been something that felt untouchable for so long. Police are getting anywhere from 30 to 50% of city budgets across the country, and it's not working. (laughs) And there is literally no other agency that could say, we're here to protect you. We're here to like reduce crime. And then crime goes up and we say, huh, this is a bad return on investment, right? Like there's no other agency that exists that way except for policing. And that's, you know, through police unions, that's through police foundations. Um, A lot of people, uh, my coworker, uh, Jason Perez talks about this a lot, um, where we talk about police unions having power, which is very true, but police associations are the folks who uh, do like the policing night at your local baseball game or have police set up ice cream uh, carts at local uh, community Uh, community organizations and community fairs. And so we have normalized this idea that policing is necessary and that policing is good and that policing is safety. Um, And so even when there is something that happens that shows us over and over that's not true, we have to deprogram ourselves. And I say that um, in and with all frankness, because it's something I've had to do as well, uh, we have to deprogram ourselves from believing that this is the way society operates. And so I think that that is why we see so many attempts at reform, from the fact that we need to deprogram ourselves from policing to the fact that some people just believe that the easiest thing to do is reform because policing has been such a third rail that even when you call for reforms, you're called... Um, those things are difficult to move. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I really agree with you that it, the idea that policing is good and equated with safety is very has been very much normalized. So in order to help us deprogram ourselves, could you give us a sense of what having public safety that is controlled by the community and democratically accountable might actually look like in practice? So I want to talk about what it looks like, and I also want to talk about the benefits. So the benefits of feeling ownership over something is that you are invested in seeing it work. So if a community comes together and votes on something, or a community comes together and decides something democratically, it is yours. You you want to see it succeed. And so people feel more invested in it. And I think that that's good across the board. But we've seen, um, you know, we've seen smaller versions of community um, communities making these decisions. We've seen the participatory budgeting process work across the country where people take small pots of money and decide where they're where they're spending. But we've also seen this happen, like this type of um, this type of forum happen um, a few different places. So Detroit um, had a social forum in 20, uh, 2010. So it was a national social movement agenda they came together on. Um, to really have uh, assemblies uh, to talk about what they wanted to see for safety um, and actually have public movement assemblies. We also have seen um, things um, historically. Um, SNCC did did uh, a freedom organization um, in Alabama in 1865. Uh, Tanzania did uh, Tanzania did a Pan African Congress in 1974. So while this is something that we are designing, it's also not something. Um, that hasn't been done before. And I think that it is, um, 
I'm hopeful that it becomes a way that we can um, have people see themselves in government and see themselves in decision making and feel that ownership over um, the system that we say is democracy. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been so helpful to reimagine what public safety and redistributing power could look like. And, you know, thank you most of all for all your work to make that happen in practice. Really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thanks to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful folks at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.